Hello, and welcome to the number three podcast with me, your host, JD, otherwise known as the Phantom Lord, the Harvester of Sorrow, or the Leper Messiah. We're coming to you today from a late summer sunny day in Barifornia on the South Wales coast, and we're going to be talking about my ultimate heroes, Metallica, specifically their juggernaut of a 1991 album, The Black Album. So get your dancing shoes on, crank up the volume, because as the great auteur Quentin Tarantino once said, you don't go to see Metallica and ask the fuckers to turn the music down. Let's do this. History. So, you knew it was coming. I mentioned Metallica in nearly every podcast so far. They bleed into every single aspect of my life and have been a source of inspiration in my darkest times and fuel to make my dreams come true in the lighter moments. They were, are and always will be the greatest metal band ever. Among the 40 or so Metallica t-shirts I have won with the following written on the back. Birth, school, Metallica, death. That kind of sums up my feelings about them. But in the late 80s, trying to listen to them, see them on TV, or go watch the Mighty Metallica live was like trying to find his hen's teeth. Despite selling out arenas worldwide, they were still underground, and as such, the singles, videos, tours and merch were few and far between, especially if you lived in the valleys. That all changed with the release of their fifth studio album, known simply as Metallica or the Black Album, as its cover was almost entirely black. Suddenly, there were widely available singles, you could see their videos on MTV, they toured more frequently and were played national radio, not just a late night rock show. The Black Album has sold in excess of 30 million copies and spent over 11 years on the Billboard Top 200. Only the fourth album in American record history to do so. With the Black Album, not only the metal world, but everyone started taking notice of the Four Horsemen. That's why, when stars of the music world came together to honour the late Freddie Mercury in 1992 at Wembley Stadium and play into a worldwide audience of nearly a billion, it was Metallica that opened the show. Enough said. Bob Rock Previous to the Black Album, Metallica had only really worked with one producer, Fleming Rasmussen, and in reality, James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich were running the show in terms of how the albums sounded. But after the progtastic listings of the Unjustice for All album, they knew they'd taken Metallica as far as they could in that particular direction. They needed someone to show a new way of recording and songwriting. Bob Rock was a producer known for The Cult and Motley Crue's biggest albums. He was the engineer and mixer for Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. Yet, here he was crossing from the hair metal divide and stepping into the ring with one of the big four of thrash metal. Needless to say, despite knowing they needed him and had indeed chosen him, the Metallica boys were less than welcoming unable to let go of the tight control they had, up until that point, had over the songs and the recording of their albums. Someone had been let into the inner circle and it felt like the enemy. As work progressed, Metallica co-founder and drummer Lars realised that Bob was indeed on their side and trying to make things even better than they had been on previous albums. 
Songs were shorter, simpler, and sounded massive when they were recorded. Lars's drum sound on the record was arguably the best it's ever been, echoing what Bob Rock had heard when he'd first seen the band live on the previous tour. He friended rhythm guitarist James by finding a guitar sound he really liked for the recording. Bob Rock worked with bassist Jason to explore the different bass frequencies and how to complement and underpin James's rhythm playing instead of just copying his guitar parts on one or two strings. In the home video, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, you can see him, i.e. Bob Rock, almost fighting lead guitarist Kirk into bringing his A-game when it came to the solos. Not just playing a million notes a minute, but instead building the solo, complementing the tone of the song and finding a flavour for each two. 30 years later and the sound of the album is still astonishing. That longevity of its soundscape is down to one man, Bob Rock. The Black Album, Signature Tunes, Holier Than Thou. All of us are fallible, and given the universal love and popularity for Enter Sandman, it seems ludicrous to think that any other song could have been the lead single for the band's most important album. But Bob Rock wanted Holier Than Thou to be that song. He thought that, as it was a more up-tempo number, that they would ease the rabid Metallica fanbase into the new direction the band were taking on the album. Needless to say, the band disagreed, and the behemoth of a tune that was Enter Sandman previewed the album and heightened the expectation for it. But more of that later. Wherever I May Roam in previous albums, this mid-tempo song would have sounded much more basic. One of the things that Bob Rock did was introduce different sounds and instruments to the band. For example, in the song of Wolf and Man, there's a sound of a rifle being cocked in the mix. On Wherever I May Roam, the intro is played on a sitar, complementing the eastern-sounding notes of its intro. In past albums, that riff would have probably been played on an acoustic guitar. For the musos like myself out there, the intro is another cool example of the Phrygian mode, used in other classic rock songs like Zeppelin's Kashmir and Maiden's Power Slave. The lyrics deal with life on the road, almost prophesizing the huge tour that followed the Black Album's release. In fact, the 224-day tour was called the Wherever We May Roam Tour. To this day, I still use the mid-song riff as a warm-up exercise to get my fingers moving up and down the neck and strings before playing. Unforgiven James Hetfield has said Unforgiven's initial riff was inspired by an Ennio Morricone spaghetti western score, possibly from a few dollars more, which was then reversed. Obviously Metallica have huge Morricone fans as their entrance music to their live shows is The Ecstasy of Gold from the Good, the Bad and the Ugly film. More than that though, Lars wanted to flip the metal power ballad on its head in terms of song structure. By that stage of the game, Metallica had released three of these so-called ballads, Fade to Black, Welcome Home Sanitarium, and One. They all followed a similar format as most 80s power ballads, i.e. soft acoustic verses followed by loud, powerful choruses with distorted guitar. 
Unforgiven reversed this with the verses that were hard and heavy with softly voiced acoustic choruses. Indeed, this was often cited as the first time that James Hetfield had properly sung on a record, as opposed to shouting or screaming. Yet another first for the band. James had actually played Chris Isaac's Wicked Game for Bob Rock and said, How do you sing like this? Bob promised to get him a great vocal sound, which he did, and day by day James got more and more comfortable with performing and actually singing. I love James's lyrics and have this song's refrain, Never free, never me, tattooed on my arm in my native Welsh. The song is open to interpretation, but it spoke to me in a way that most other Metallica tracks hadn't. I also love the cowboy western feel to the main riff and was delighted when less than a year later, Clint Eastwood, another hero of mine, released his seminal film, Unforgiven. Sad but true. When Metallica played the ideas for the songs they were writing to Bob Rock, he immediately started throwing suggestions at them as to how to make them better or make them different, including key changes and tempo changes. One question he asked was why all the songs were in the key of E. Apparently James replied, because that's the lowest note. Bob asked them to downtune their guitars, giving the band the example of their heroes Black Sabbath as to how cool downtuned guitars can be. This added a genuine heaviness to Sad But True and the rest is history. The song is heavy, but more than that comes with a groove and a swagger that is hard not to fall into. To this day, it's a staple of their live set and was one of the songs played at the Freddie Mercury tribute game. Nothing Else Matters Another song from that incredible concert was Nothing Else Matters, the ultimate ballad. No soft verses and heavy choruses, it was acoustic all the way through in everything bar the solo, which saw James, normally a rhythm player, take the lead and play a simple yet glorious solo. No surprise really, this was James's song from start to finish, with Kirk Hammett not playing on the studio version at all. Kirk had to actually learn how to play it to tour it live. The sixth note intro is played open on the guitar, i.e. strings which are not held down on the fretboard. I read somewhere that he was chatting with his then girlfriend with the phone held in one hand while he plucked his guitar with the other one just going up and down the strings. After a while, James realised he had something and told his girlfriend he'd call her back as he wanted to get the riff down on tape. The lyrics are his most personal too. Lines such as, never open myself this way, were autobiographical in nature. And this really was a love song to his then girlfriend, Kristen Martinez. It could also be taken as a life affirming number with the repeated line, forever trusting who we are and nothing else matters. It's that line I have tattooed on my thumb. Another surprising fact is James never intended it to be on a Metallica record, believing it to be too personal and not in keeping with the Metallica mode of songwriting about headbanging, war, bleeding for the crowd and destroying things. Lars heard it and insisted on it being on the album. Bob Rock had the idea to back it with an orchestra and award-winning composer Michael Kamen was brought in to do the job. Years later, it was Kamen who would conduct a San Francisco Bay Orchestra when Metallica played with them on the first S&M concert. 
The video for Nothing Else Matters has just hit 1 billion views on YouTube. Metallica's first video to reach that number. Personally, Nothing Else Matters is always a highlight of mine at every Metallica show. I think they've played it at every single one of the 18 times I've seen them. I love the 100 miles an hour Metallica songs, but this one still sends shivers down my spine. Enter Sandman. Even if you're not a metal fan, you've probably heard of Enter Sandman. To my untold joy, my beloved Welsh rugby team used to enter the Principality Stadium with this booming around the ground. It was played on MTV constantly in the early 90s, as well as the rock shows at the time. Friends in school who weren't even into rock knew the song, and since 1991 it's been played at most every Metallica show. These days, apart from three encores, it finishes the main set and is accompanied by fireworks, inflatable Metallica balls and a light show to rival the stars. But at the heart of all the flash and bang is really just a great rock song, heavy enough to please the metal community, hooky enough to grab the casual fang and the monster chorus that you can scream your lungs out to, lift that final rep to or push the pedal to the metal to. This is how you start an amazing album, with an amazing song. Again, signaling their change in direction, every previous Metallica album had a song that started 100 miles an hour, real thrash metal, but not this time. Sandman was a call to arms of a different war. Metallica were not going to grow stale, were not going to succumb to the 90s changing of the guard of heavy metal. By 91, even the term heavy metal had begun to receive eye rolls of derision. But above all, and as usual, Metallica were going to do it their way. Enter Sandman was released a few weeks before the album and was the first new song of all this well-documented new direction. I'd seen reviews in Metal Hammer and Raw magazines that spoke of simpler riffs, more akin to ACDC than previous Metallica songs. So, getting the single on 12-inch vinyl, I was surprised when I put it on the turntable and quite a jolly, high-paced romp of a song came blasting out of my speakers. I mean, it was okay, but nothing like I'd read about, and nothing like Metallica. I'll be honest, I was worried. It wasn't until the chorus, when I heard James shout, STONE COLD CRAZY, YOU KNOW, that I realised I'd been playing the B-side, where Metallica covered the Queen song, Stone Cold Crazy. Side note, in those days, I knew the major Queen songs, especially from the 80s, but hadn't come across this 70s classic. Anyway, a quick phew of relief, a quick flip of the vinyl and one of the most famous rock or metal riffs came pouring out of the speakers. And I say pouring because that's how it seemed. Smooth and silky yet thick and heavy like a Guinness poured at midnight. I was hooked from the start and my friend Chris and I worked out how to play the song in a couple of hours without the use of sheet music. Finally, a Metallica song that didn't take a month to kind of sort of be able to play. The kind of Metallica song your mother could like, and indeed does. The kind of Metallica song that you could play at a regular pub gig with your band. And as part of the mighty Creeping Jesus, I did just that, time and time again. A Metallica song for the ages and all ages. Legacy. The first time I saw Metallica live was on the Wherever I May Roam tour in support of the Black Album, November 5th, 1992. 
I'd been to maybe half a dozen gigs by then, but this was the first time I lost my mind at a concert. I'd never seen, heard, or felt anything like it in my life, and the Black Album songs really, really stood out among what was an amazing set list anyway, particularly Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters. What a night! If you told me that 30 years later I'd still be going to Metallica gigs, I'd have believed you, because it seemed that night like it was one of the best ways to enjoy my life. Nothing much in the intervening years has changed that opinion. Metallica's Black Album is 30 years old today as I'm recording this, which for this aging metalhead is astonishing and scary. Over the years, bands and indeed genres have come and gone. Metallica have cut their hair, gone through rehab, almost broken up and been chided on every side, even from former fans and bandmates. I guess when you're at the top, everyone wants to see if they can knock you off your perch. Through it all, the Black Album stands as a testimony to what can be done if you dare to step outside of your tried and tested comfort zone. Be humble enough to know you need help to achieve your dreams and be brave enough to ask for it. But above all, it's just a bloody great album to listen to. It still sounds huge, and to this day they've not matched it in terms of production or songwriting, and probably never will. It's the proverbial lightning in a bottle. Timeless, and nothing else matters. So that's it. Another podcast put to bed. We're off to never, never land. If you've enjoyed the podcast, check out my other ones, hit the follow button, tell your friends, share the link, and I'll see you next time. Till then, this was the number three podcast, and I am JD. Be cool, be kind, listen to Metallica, and be safe, people. <laughs>